0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Imperial Beverage Presents Another Round. I'm Jacob, and I'm here with Brian, one of our brand managers, and another one of our brand managers that you would have met uh, a number of times, Maggie. Thank you both so much for being here today. Good to be here.
1: Thanks for having me
0: again, Jacob. Always a pleasure, always a pleasure. Uh, So today, what we're gonna cover, especially because we're coming into the holiday season, there's lots of parties and get togethers and events that require celebration. And when you think celebration, we're thinking bubbly, we're thinking popping bottles, we're thinking about mimosas and champagne and Prosecco and bubbly wine to celebrate. All the events that we would be interacting with one another, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know much about the history of bubbly. And I think there's a lot of knowledge that technically, I mean, really gets swept under the rug. Uh, it, you know, I, I feel like most people would understand that Champagne comes from Champagne, France. And I think that's where the knowledge kind of like the general population knowledge starts to taper off. <laughs> uh so, uh, so we're going to discuss a little bit about the origins of sparkling wine and uh, just a little bit about it. So, uh, Brian, you've got some information that you've collected? I do. It's, uh, so, there's many
2: um, stories about how sparkling wine um, got its start. Now, I think the key thing to think about, though, is to understand that sparkling wine really kind of got off the ground somewhere in the... Sixteenth, to seventeenth uh, century, um, and so if you kind of take your mind back there, they don't have a lot of the stuff that we have today. You know, they don't have coke, they don't have um, sparkling water or anything like that. That wasn't a thing um, that they could do. Uh, they didn't have machines that could force carb anything. So, um, sparkling anything carbonation was a novelty, and so you got to remember that and in, in the story because that's gonna that's where we start. So. Wine has been around forever. Um, I mean, the accidental fermentation of grape juice can be traced um, all the way back um, to the, the Egyptians. So wine's been around forever. Now, wine being placed into bottles or um, airtight containers um, is been a little bit more recent. And that's kind of really where we're gonna start this story because when we make wine, the you basically take grape juice, you either add or you allow Mother Nature to add yeast. And since yeast is in, can um, operate in an aerobic environment, in other words, an environment without any oxygen, um, it will start eating the sugars in the grape juice and create alcohol. Uh, heat and CO2. So as winemakers, they will regulate the temperature so that they don't have any sort of irregularities with the temperature so they don't get any off flavors. If you're making still wine, you use uh, valves, one-way valves to off-gas the CO2, and you want to keep the alcohol. So that's how they've made it for centuries, using water valves and whatnot. Now, when they started putting wine into bottles... And, you know, again, we got to remember this is the 16th, 17th century. Um, disinfection wasn't what we have today. They, they couldn't generate ozone and uh, clean out those bottles really well. So when they would put them in there, uh, there was always a chance of yeast being in there or some other um, bacteria or something creating a fermentation. Um, and you, what would happen is that that CO2 will be captured and it could on one hand, blow up the bottle, which happened a lot in the early stages, um, a lot of cleaning up messes. Um, but what really tipped them off was that when it wouldn't blow the bottle up and they opened it, they would have a carbonated beverage. Um, and this is a really rough way of talking about the first kind of sparkling wine, which we call, we have many names for it. We um, The technical name would be Method Ancestral, or the uh, Ancestry Method. Um, Nowadays in the United States, we have, and over the world, but we are fascinated with a term called petnat or um, petrol natural. Um, So these are basically a secondary fermentation is happening in the bottle, but we're not doing any sort of disgorgement, dosage, or anything that comes with the full-blown champagne method. Um, And so this happened, like I said, 16th, 17th century, and there's two stories that really follow the same lineage. Now, it's a he said, she said, and who discovered this, really. So one would be in 1531 with uh, Blanquet du Limoux from Languedoc. So this is saint hilaire which is still in operation today. Now, they now do a champagne method, but back then, they claim they discovered, they have the first um, written proof that they discovered uh, sparkling wine. It doesn't really say sparkling wine. It says the monks opened some bottles and they were not still. So, <laughs> um, so that's their claim that they they got they uh, they did it first, um, more accidental than anything else. Now the first one to do it on purpose, we pretty much can tell that it was not French. It was English. Um, And he um, was part of um, a group of cider makers um, that learned how to do the secondary uh, fermentation on purpose by putting sugar and putting yeast back into the bottle. And why we know it was the English that really figured this out is because of the glass that was needed to do this. So the French, they were using um, fire, um, wood fire blown glass and the English were using coal fire blown glass. It's a big deal in sparkling wine because coal fire blown glass is more tempered and can hold the pressure whereas wood fired cannot. Um, So even though the French may have accidentally done it a couple times, they couldn't consistently do it until this guy did it in England, and then he was importing wine from France, specifically the Champagne region, and doing it on purpose. Then there's the myth uh, that everyone loves, the Dom Perignon myth, which probably has truth to it, that he figured out the full-blown step-by-step procedure on the Champagne method. So this guy in um, England, he figured out how to do it consistently for a secondary fermentation, but the champagne method didn't really come into full effect until Dom Perignon did it. So a monk, so Dom Perignon, so the Dom meaning like the abbot, uh, Perignon, he figured out a way to consistently do it over and over again. And then um, the widow Clicquot or Veuve Clicquot was the one that figured out the riddling method. Um, And then a Belgian figured out, he figured out uh, that you can use um, salted ice to flash freeze the... um, the riddled yeast in the neck of the bottle to then disgorge it. So that's fascinating. Yeah. That was in the um, 1800s. He figured that out, which is when we really start moving
0: into champagne as we know it. Right. That's so we've talked a couple of, a couple of times about different aspects of that on the podcast, which is, it's cool to see a lot of that stuff built into this history. Right. Like the idea of a pet nat. we've discussed that mm-hmm. a little bit where it's um Maggie actually talked about it in the natural wine world, right? That was, it was kind of a surprise and you didn't always know that it was going to happen.
1: And that is a little bit more of a, almost like cowboy style of Mm -hmm. sparkling in that like you aren't adding things back that you know would help in the process. You're trusting that the wine still has a little bit of residual sugar, that the yeast is still a little bit healthy enough to create that in the, the bottle during that like primary fermentation um you know the more structured you get it becomes a little bit more reliable that you're going to get bubbles that you're going to create a sparkling wine
2: yeah and that's why i think most scholars now give um merit the um uh the designation of actually discovering how to make sh- uh, sparkling wine uh instead of the people that accidentally did a pet act because there was no there was no a guarantee it was going to work and they didn't really understand how it was working initially scholars in the world like newton stuff went before the um the english uh society uh science society and explained all this away to them as if it was some sort of natural sciences that he was doing so really going back into that <laughs> movement back then and uh, people were enamored by it because uh even today england is still one of the um uh, highest consuming uh Sparkling wine populations in the world per capita: England and um, Sweden.
0: Uh, I I don't know why Sweden, but I just know that they are. No, you're good. Well, that's well. Okay, so back then, right? If you were gonna drink something, right? If you think about today, you know, there's so many. Options, infinite options that you can you can drink with a meal or on its own, whatever. You had water that might kill you, or uh, did they they had beer at that point, right? Yeah, they they had yeah. beer at that point. It was generally
2: lower alcohol than what we consider beer now. They're much closer to the three to sometimes
0: brushing up against the five percent. Sure, um, I, I I would imagine they probably had some form of like ciders or ciders and wine, and then um,
2: at that time they had. They definitely had figured out um distilling, so they would have forms
0: of whiskey and gin mainly um little vodka here and there so and and, and, tra- and mead. Yes. oh and indeed, yeah. yeah, the idea of like transportation and distribution uh at that time was on a on a boat pretty much <laughs> so you had like like a dozen options if you were wealthy <laughs> yep. so the concept of add, adding a wine but make it bubbly make it special w- that's a novel. <laughs>
1: Right, and you have what's like local to your region too. So, like right. you know, they're probably drinking more cider and more beer in places where grapes aren't growing as prevalently.
2: And the interesting thing about that is, you're right; they they were drinking very local, and even today, the the wine regions are you know they always want their own terroir. They they go after that. We we are different. We're and so But except with sparkling wine, yes, there are different sparkling wine regions, and yes, they have different terroirs, but. Champagne, once Veuve Clicquot figured out how to riddle and all this stuff, it was game-changing for the rest of the world. I mean, really, it was just um, France, with England's help a little bit, um, doing this. And then once Veuve Clicquot figured out, it was like, overnight, Italy was making Prosecco using the Charmant method. Spain was doing Cava. We were, they were making uh, in another one in, in Italy. They were making Franciacorta. There was... Overnight, there was this renaissance of everyone wants to do this thing, this novel thing that was happening in France. Instead of trying to be different, they all tried to be the same to a degree. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they were trying to replicate um, a a new novel a way of making a, a consumable um, drink that France had just figured out. So um, nowadays, we, we they've definitely drifted away a little bit from trying to all be the same because um, they were trying to. Replicate Now they know how to kind of replicate. So now they're all trying to make their own distinct variations of a sparkling wine. But back then, the whole goal was to copy what the France was doing, which was completely different than what uh, the rest of the wine world was doing. They're trying to make their own thing and not worry about anybody else. So, hmm.
1: Well, it's a whole new process, too, right? right? So, I mean, you talked about that in the beginning, too. This, like, you've only ever had still liquids, and then all of a sudden you can have something that... Like bubbly on your tongue and carbonated, and the first time you're experiencing something, um, you know I think that that is is a great example of like innovation in wine industry and how that can really trans like transfer across the board. Did I do wonder like was beer still during this time? Was cider still? Because it, it seems like with the history Brian that you described, like mm-hmm. cider baking helped develop sparkling wine and so i do wonder if cider was one of the first beverages to really go through that fermentation in the bottle to create it
2: yeah so i, I think on purpose i think that is correct uh i mean obviously not on purpose happened um, <laughs> at times but on purpose yeah the cider happened first in cider um for those who are listening um even though we kind of lump it into the beer category nowadays, is actually much closer to um, how wine is made than how beer is made. It's, you know, it's the juice from apples that is then fermented. So it's a very similar process. So um, happening cider first, um, and really this time period, um, like I I mentioned, the glass was the real innovation that allowed this to be something that people could have continuously, you know, not just the one-off of the, you know, that one bottle didn't break, but it actually still has some fizz in it. You know, they got lucky. Uh, that glass, that using the tempered glass, using coal-fired glass, was the real innovation that allowed um, you know Merit and then you know, dump Pairing On and stuff like that to go out and make this into more of a systematic process of understanding how it works because they weren't – necessarily afraid of glass blowing up. I'm sure it still did a little bit, but they, the it wasn't as prevalent um, because the, the glass was stronger. Um, so they needed, even with beer and
0: cider, they needed that stronger glass to be able to hold that pressure inside the bottle. Well, and the pressure inside a bottle of... Uh, wine that the secondary fermentation like uh like the um method Mm champenois inside that bottle Maggie. you and i talked about it when we were talking about kava it's like 90 or 100 psi yeah yeah
1: yeah six to nine bars whatever that Mm -hmm. transfers to it is crazy and brian do you know what they were using as a like, were they using cork at that time?
2: Yeah. Were they so the I mean, the English again? Another you hit on another point of it. The English were u- using oh. the cork, so they were not only were, did the English get uh, coal fired glass first, they were actually using cork before the French were for the really? um, the wines. The the French were not stopping and the their The French body. must hate this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah they, they'll, they'll probably refute it, but yeah. So both of those things yeah. happening in England prior um, to going over to France allowed them. You know, having that cork that would expand and make a more uh, tighter seal allowed them to keep that pressure in the bottle. Uh, Now, uh, about 30 years later, after Merritt kind of figured this out and was importing um, juice from champagne, uh, the growers and winemakers in champagne went, "Okay, we're going to do that, too. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) they gave him enough uh, rope to make sure that uh, it was going to work give them enough years to make sure it was going to work. But yeah, about 25 to 30 years later, they started coal firing the glass and importing cork from uh, Portugal. Yeah, because
1: I think that something that I don't think we've talked about yet is champagne corks. And they really are incredible, again, innovation in the industry where, you know, most corks expand, I think it's like 1.3 times after you pull it from the bottle. And so it's that expansion that creates that high seal. And so the champagne cork, you know, everyone can kind of imagine it as that upside down or, well, right, whatever, a triangle. Um, And that expansion is a two to one. So that cork in general has a really tight seal up against the neck of the bottle. Um, And because it's designed so differently, it's designed to be able to hold that seal. And then when you... You know, as soon as you let it go, it's been wanting to expand to its regular size for so long that it immediately does. And that's why you get that, like, long, you know, fat base of the champagne cork. But it's, I mean, it's an incredible innovation that way, too. And to be able to cork a champagne bottle also requires an instrument that is able to squeeze that cork down and put it into the neck.
2: Yeah. So it all, all following kind of right up against that uh, the start of like the industrial revolution in england kind of kick-started the sparkling wine industry as well
1: we uh don't talk enough about how the industrial revolution was good for winemaking we're always talking about you know child labor and how it was too, bad for the environment i mean <laughs> funny, it is funny it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that i mean that makes a lot of sense there would be innovation out the wazoo during that period of time and uh for them to put some of these resources into a luxury like that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I think well, that's another thing. I, I think nowadays we,
2: we look at champagne as uh, a luxury, um, even sparkling wine as a whole, but champagne is a luxury. It was not that back then. This was more of a, um, you got to think of it as more of a novelty item. Yeah. Um, it was a Merit and um, Dom Perignon and stuff like that. They they weren't trying to make a, you know, Dom Perignon right now sells for like $250, $300 a they were, they were not trying to make an ultra-premium luxury wine. Not that they were necessarily against someone wanting to pay ultra-premium luxury prices, but they were trying to make something novel that would set them apart. And so Champagne back then well, I wouldn't say was for the masses or for the everyday um, person. It was maybe more for the upper class, but more because the rarity of it versus the price of it. Like it wasn't so much more expensive than um, back then because they they didn't have that um, they didn't have that clout yet. Now, because it was rare, it ended up in the you know the upper class, the kings, the queens, the monarchs, the um, all these you know. High um, class people that gave it its clout later on, and the improvement of the process. You know, so the improvement of the process with you know their times. You know, famous you know movie cele- star celebrities. You know, we see all those you know endorsements nowadays that all of a sudden you know who, who's ever wine all of a sudden jumps in price because they bought it and they endorsed it or whatever. You know, um, same thing back then they were the celebrities that were endorsing it. So it wasn't initially designed that way, uh, but it did become that because of who was able to
0: get it because it was so novel. What a sociology experiment. That's fascinating. Yeah.
1: Champagne, I think does like, if you were to look at it's, you know, media presence throughout history, I think it would be an interesting thing to look at. I mean, in the forties and fifties, you have like Orson Well commercials with Paul Masson sparkling, Mm -hmm. And that's used in every music video from that media on. And so I think that it would be like a cool experiment to kind of see how, what classes of people are really promoting it at what point and how it influences kind of like regular uh, market value. Well,
0: and even Lil Wayne did, he didn't add where I don't even remember what kind of sparkling wine it was. I think it was implied that it was supposed to be like a higher end wine uh, but he like there was an ad that he ran for a I think it was a phone commercial where he would yeah, he was pouring this bottle of sparkling wine on a cell phone. Mm. It was like wow, it's just not breaking, and he mm. go he walks to the grocery store to buy another one so that he can continue pouring That's sparkling funny. wine on the phone. Right, but it, it's the, even in modern culture, um, like it's seen as it was supposed to be kind of bougie. Mm -hmm. Uh, i guess is probably the modern term for that uh
1: and you see a lot of those kind of those like bigger companies lose their like unique quality through that too and so you i think that the like the high-end champagnes are all going like they're they've got incredible history so that they aren't going to change that often but which ones are in fashion i feel like has has changed a little bit over time based off of a lot of marketing and celebrity marketing really
0: yeah fascinating this episode ran a little bit long because there's a lot to talk about with sparkling wine Uh, we're gonna go ahead and cut it off here and we'll start it up again next week Uh, until next time cheers (laughs)